I have always appreciated a good disorienting opening that begins in the middle of an action. Hi, I'm Matt LeBlanc. I'm just going to let that settle in for a minute. It always gets a reaction. I am standing in the tiny, dark, very warm closet of the second bedroom in my condo in California. I've got my little makeshift studio in here. And believe it or not, this is still where I produce the entire show, Your Necessary Delusion. The storytelling show that celebrates vulnerability and speaks to the darkest, messiest little parts of your heart about the lies that we tell ourselves every day, the stories that we use to get out of bed, the fantasies that we let propel our lives. Because it is a very fine line between keeping a positive attitude and lying to yourself. It takes a certain amount of delusion to wake up and do this whole thing every day. And that is the kernel of an idea that I've based this entire show off of. We have had an overwhelming response to our first season. Thank you to Forbes Magazine for voting us best new podcast. Ira Glass has called us This American Life for liars. Thank you to all of you for putting us in the top 300 podcasts on Apple iTunes. We've been called the comedy podcast with a mission, which feels ridiculous to say, but I believe it based on this stack of emails that I have here from you. I would like to read some of these to you, but I can't because there are no emails. This is episode one. Your necessary delusion. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with me, Earth Monster. A necessary delusion is exactly what it sounds like. It is that part of ourselves that we don't like to look at. The very squishy perspective. And we hate to admit that. We hate to admit that we are such squishy, subjective liars. (laughs) But we are. So let's get comfortable with it. Your perspective is so squishy that if you see something you don't like, you can just push it down. And if you see a part that you really do like, you can stretch that out, stretch it out. Ooh, so it gets as much surface area as it can. That's the only part I wanna see. You're guilty of this. And what you just heard in the cold open is essentially my necessary delusion. It is my wish for this show. This show makes me go, oof, life is worth living. Delusion! So how did I get here? I am a 30-year-old creative shipwrecked on the necessary delusion of my 12-year-old self. When I was 12 years old, my necessary delusion was that I was to become a world-renowned, famous, universally loved actor. Comedy, drama, there was nothing that I couldn't do within the confines of my own mind. I hadn't proved any of it. It was just an idea. I was to become nothing short of Jim Carrey, I believed. I mean, it just made sense. My dad was the funniest guy that I knew, and he and my mom thought I was hilarious. There was just something about me, you know? At least that was the buzz around the house. I know I was talking about it constantly. And then on September 22nd, 1994, Friends premiered on NBC. Suddenly my name was on TV every week, Matt LeBlanc. It was like I was a celebrity in my fifth grade class. I had a catchphrase all of a sudden, how you doing? Pretty effing good actually. I believed it was all about me, 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 me. Delusion! 
And this was the necessary delusion that drove me. It drove me to act like an asshole at parties. It drove me to believe that I was the most interesting person in any room. It drove me to interrupt you when we're talking. Sorry about that. And it has only been in the past few years that I have realized that this necessary delusion can also be called white privilege. But I am proud to say that that is the type of self-awareness that this idea has brought to me. My necessary delusion drove me away from my home in Cleveland when I was 18 to go to college for acting in Philadelphia. It pushed me to drop out of college and move to New York City. I didn't have time for college. I was going to be a giant celebrity. Delusion. In New York, I auditioned and I acted in some commercials. I made some money, about 30 grand actually. Don't worry, I blew it immediately on a feature film that I wrote and starred in with some equally inexperienced friends of mine. It took us three years to make, and in my mind, I believed this movie was going to revolutionize the face of independent film. In reality, it had no discernible story, and we would have benefited greatly from using a tripod. When that movie went nowhere, it was easier to blame New York than to own up to my own shortcomings. So I packed up my necessary delusion and I moved it to Los Angeles. I started doing comedy at Upright Citizens Brigade and writing. I started supporting my necessary delusion with action and it started working. I got hired for my writing. I got to quit being a waiter, but I did not stop believing that I was special and it burned bridges. I got married to the wrong person. I got divorced the same year. I have gotten hired and fired, and I have put in my 10,000 hours trying to find my authentic voice. I didn't end up a giant celebrity, but my necessary delusion has awarded me with an incredible life, and my ego has consistently pissed on it. I stopped blaming other people for my problems. I started looking at myself, examining my ego. I started seeing a therapist. My necessary delusion brought me to my soulmate. I got married again. I got hired again. I made more money than I have ever made. I have come so far. I started asking myself, what are you an expert in? If you were going to give a TED talk, what would it be about? I knew that I had something to say, but I didn't know what it was yet. And what I have realized is I am an expert at lying to myself. I'll take it. I'm just trying to have an open conversation. We're going to have a good time here. We're probably going to overshare quite a bit. I will be here every week with new friends and old friends. My first guest provides some of the best ongoing conversation that I have in my life. He is a family man and certified psychoanalyst living in Brooklyn, New York. Please welcome the thoughtful, the hilarious, the deepest voice that I could think of. One of my best and oldest friends, Marcus Silverman. Hey, man. Marcus, thank you so much for being here with me on the very first episode, very first episode of Your Necessary Delusion. You are an incredibly delusional person. No. Um, (laughs) You are someone that I have grown up with who has really created a life that is so custom cut to your preferences. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm an extremely lucky person. We lived together when we were 20 in New York City. Mm. We were filthy hipster 20-year-olds. I ate instant mashed potatoes every day for and I didn't, years. Yeah. And I didn't wash my bed sheets for five years. And you somehow have bought an apartment, gotten married, yeah. had children. You have a car. Mm. You have a practice and an office. You don't have a boss. Right. And That's you magical. Yeah. In Brooklyn. Now, this is a guy that can make the delusion a reality. 
to me. Right. Yes, I dream something into existence somehow. That is definitely the feeling. I think about that every time I have a bad day, that like every single thing about my life now is like exactly what I said that I wanted like 10 years ago. You've been ruminating with this idea for a little while, so I just kind of wanted to hear sure. you a bit. Yeah, it's all fantasy. I mean, so much of our lives are fantasy. What I'm going to do, negative or positively, that is what I'm going to do, what this year is going to be like, what this experience is going to be like ideas people have about themselves that they sort of need to have in order to like function in their lives. And I think those cut really deep all the way down to like, I'm a person worthy of being loved and cared for. To accomplish anything or to become anything in life, you have to have a fantasy about it before you do it. People don't spontaneously become lawyers or baseball players. The more you put your dreams into practice, the more these things become sort of realized. I think a necessary delusion is the, this granular idea around the things we have to tell ourselves that we'd like to accomplish before we then like begin the process accomplishing them in real life. As a practicing psychoanalyst, I feel like you must be hearing about these all day. Yeah, there's a sort of intersection of time where you have a fantasy about what you're going to do, but your idea or explicitly people tell you that your idea is delusional. And once you achieve that idea, it ceases being delusional. Now you did it. No one would refer to what you do as like a delusion at this point. Sorry about the siren, Brooklyn. What am I trying to say? Before you sort of are entitled to have this idea about yourself. Before you're entitled to have this idea about yourself. it's a Yeah, that's right. When you and I first started talking about necessary delusions, and I, I sent you this article. One of the parts that really spoke to you was they talked about this percentage of people that really don't use fantasy to drive them. And I feel like you said that you right. actually related to that in a lot of ways. Right. Delusion! Marcus, I have known <laughs> you for 20 years. I have watched sure. fantasies drive you. Like I remember when I was trained to become a psychoanalyst, many people in my life, including my father, were like, I don't know, man. So you're going to do this thing and people are going to pay you to talk to them about their feelings. You're not, things don't usually work out for you in that way. I don't know, man. You should probably just like get a salary job and just, you know, do your thing. It would be interesting to try to backtrace the moment in which like, you know, I had an office, I had a couple patients, I was making a little bit of money. It still kind of felt like a necessary delusion at that point. You, you surpass some metric of success where now it's like, I did it. Like, it's no longer a delusion. This is, this like becomes my life now at some point. I remember, for example, when I was starting my practice after I went to school for fucking six years and after I did the entrance exams and after I passed and after I got insured and all of that, that's like one step at a time. And then I remember being like, I rented an office from a buddy of mine for $600 a month. I had it two days a week in, in a weird chopped up way, Monday afternoon and Wednesday morning. And I had like six people at that point that I cobbled together from like my training experience. I was making just enough money to pay off the office. I remember that year learning all this weird stuff having to do with taxes, where unless you make X amount of money at your job, it's considered a hobby and you're taxed at a different rate. I think I, I didn't jump to like sort of the gigantic sort of fantasy aspect of it. I was constantly afraid that the entire thing was going to come like tumbling down at any moment. It felt like five people will quit in one week and then I'll have to go back to renting an office one day a week. I kept it very pragmatic. I want to go further back than that. So you and I lived in Queens together on and off for about five years. Side. You went to a liberal arts college with no majors. You were essentially, you know, aiming at being some sort of writer. 
right? Yeah, I studied philosophy, you know, among other things in college. And I had a philosophy professor who was a very old man called Robert Zimmerman, no, no relation to Bob Dylan. And he uh, was brilliant and lovely. And I remember talking to him about like what it would be like to get a master's in philosophy or a PhD. And I remember he told me psychology sort of broadly is like a good thing to study because you can make money doing it, but also it's like you get to talk to people about philosophy all day, essentially. Oh. Whether that, so that actually, I think, is the origin. That wasn't a meaningful interaction at the time. Right. Um, it was like, you know, it was helpful advice. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'll be a psychologist. I was 19 or whatever, sure. But in retrospect, it wound up being kind of prophetic. But I mean, that's basically what I figured out. I went through a period of having horrific panic attacks. I had a really meaningful experience with a psychoanalyst. At some point when I was like 23, I was like, I like this. I like participating in it. My analyst died. And I was basically like, should I get another analyst or should I just become an analyst? And I just started this training. But it, it, it seemed crazy at the it's time. I was also young. I think people think of psychologists as like older. So I mean, when you're like 24, and you're studying psychology, you're basically a baby. So the idea that you're going to do this work also feels like bizarre, because you, it almost feels like you're too young to be doing this work. And I, I probably was. Yeah. I think as a writer, I had a tremendous amount of necessary. I think that's my, that's my soft, mushy spot having to do with necessary delusion. Because to this day, I have necessary delusions around being a writer. Psychology was always my compromise. Writing is a thing where I, I'm like, in my head, I'm not Oprah, like pitching my book to people and making everybody laugh and like charming everybody. You know what I mean? Writing is my necessarily, my necessary delusion for sure. I was actually going to say your necessary delusion was women. <laughs> I feel like the piece that is baked right into the center of a necessary delusion is ego. You said before, maybe the core of every necessary delusion is we wonder if we're enough to be loved or something like right. that, right? What was the ego part of that? I think what, what was and what continues to be appealing to me about being a psychoanalyst is I think it is ultimately, I mean, it's a luxury to do it for a living. It's a ridiculous thing to do for money. But it's also, I think, on, on a very philosophical level, like an extremely ethical thing to do for a living. Being a psychoanalyst is me alone in a room with another person, and my job is to like support that person and be curious about that person and be compassionate toward them. There's very little about it that's like, scummy or guilt inducing or you know even on some level complex it's like it's actually an extremely like simple holistic thing to do whereas for me being a writer is all about like attention gratification fame getting to do the new yorker festival and just like tell everybody what i think about politics and have everybody think that i'm like fucking brilliant all of my shit gets channeled into that fantasy I don't have fantasies about women like that anymore. I certainly don't have fantasies about psychoanalysis as like something that's going to save the world. It really has a little to do with writing and more to do with like being like king of the world. I think that's what being a famous writer like means to me in my brain. Yeah. <laughs> that fantasy feels uh, still very much alive. Oh my God. How could I be a talking head on like Fox News talking about like narcissism or something? I, I'll go on Tucker Carlson and I'll like prove him wrong about something and I'll become like a folk hero. Like I think that's... Uh... That is the necessary delusion. <laughs> you want to be a folk hero. Yeah, totally. No, I think being like a famous intellectual, because that's like the shit that we were interested, certainly the stuff that I was very interested in, being like uh, Jack Kerouac or Gore Vidal or something. Just being a person who goes on talk shows and smokes cigarettes and wears slacks and like talks about, you know, the problem with America and it like really resonates with people. Yeah, that's, I want that. Well, in that way, let me feed your story <laughs> then, because I Look think- Look what I'm doing right now. Yeah. I think you are well on your way. I really do. Thanks, man. What does it mean to sort of like get everything you want? If I'm a writer who goes on Oprah, 
and I sell millions of copies of my book, I wake up the next day, I still have this fucking face. I still have my body. I'm still me. I still have, you know, a mother I don't get along with or a best friend who, you know, but is frustrating to talk to. You don't ever get to escape the prison of being a person because even when you get exactly what you want, I mean, you just, there's just more, there's more desire kind of like behind that. You don't get to escape that like problem. Nobody gets to escape the prison of being a person. Nobody gets to escape the prison of their own desires. Great act break, Marcus. Leave it to an analyst to cut straight to the heart. There are people out there that are in 12 step programs for this very issue and I commend them for it. It's probably the same reason that I need this podcast, because everyone needs an outlet. Or is it something to keep us in check? It's both. What do I know? Marcus is the shrink. If anything, I'm the patient. (laughs) The patient with the podcast. Because it is human nature to tell stories, and most of the time we do it unconsciously. Coming up after the break, we will explore the origin of my necessary delusions and... We do have a very special guest coming up at the end of the episode, so pay attention in my story because we will make reference to that person. So see if you can figure it out. One, four, three means I love you. Have you heard of that code? One, four, three. I love you. If you already have love for the show and you want to support us, show us some love on Venmo. Send $1.43 to at your necessary delusion on Venmo. Just so we can keep these lights on. Thanks, guys. My whole family is now home. I think I can pretend that I'm like still working for a minute, but you might get that ambient me talking to my kids thing that you were trying to trying to grab. Set the stage for us. How old are you? Where are you? It's Cleveland, Ohio. It is the early 90s. I'm in second grade. <laughs> I was so into animals. An iguana, for some reason, just got stuck in my head. I thought that iguanas were like magic on earth. I, I thought they seemed too good to be true. How could something like this exist in the same world as me? Yeah, they are um, pretty magical, aren't they? I would lay in bed every night. I would stare at my purple lava lamp, and I would hypnotize myself. I would watch this sort of bubbling lava go up, and I would just imagine my life with an iguana in it. I would imagine that when people came over, I would sit on the couch with the iguana on my head. Totally. Oh, this is, do you guys not have an iguana? This is like a... That was a premeditated show off. My dad, it was like Steve Martin growing up. My mom has a great sense of humor too. She's more of a laugher. You know, we had so much fun at home. I already kind of had this idea that A, that I was funnier than everyone and B, that this was going to be my mission in life was going to involve comedy. So I go to second grade and I was not the funniest guy in my class. I thought that I was the funniest guy in my class, but David Gitterman was funnier than me. And if I needed any more proof of this, he got voted class clown every single mm. year. Was he just like an extremely charming person or was he like, was he like a better writer and performer than you? <laughs> Well, we were in second grade, so none of us were writer-performers. We were all just uh, kids that wanted to be center of attention, but he was... So this kid is coasting on his, on his natural talent. I'll tell you what. At the time, I had all sorts of ideas about why people believed he was funnier. He was this very small kid with this giant blonde head. He looked like Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. Mm, um, that is the, writer, 
I would sometimes sort of dilute myself and be like, yeah, well, David's funnier, but he's a jerk. I was a jerk. Was he a jerk? Yeah. Oh, you were both jerks. Yeah. We were both jerks. I mean, I guess if you're getting a voted class clown, you're not like, yeah, you're not like Mr. Kindness, probably. But so, so, <laughs> so I, by the way, would belly laugh at this guy. I didn't like. <laughs> I was say, what, so what was your rapport with him? Were you guys frenemies? So I thought that we were friends and we, we certainly joked around a lot and laughed at each other. But in retrospect, I can tell that I was very threatened by him. And when he would get voted class clown and people would laugh at him and tell him how hilarious he was, and in my mind, this was happening all the time, I would actively just tell myself a little story. Can you believe that everybody thinks that David is the funniest guy in class? What they don't know yet is that I am the secret funniest guy in class. I thought that there was going to be this day when that is a necessary delusion. Something people happened. just don't people just don't know about like what's inside of me. So basically, I would fantasize about this iguana. At the same time, I was spending every day trying to be funnier than Gitterman, and I was disrupting right. the class. And my teacher, Mrs. Lee, really liked me, but I was driving her crazy. And so she met with my parents and they came up with a system for me where my mom made this little book that I kept in my pocket. At the end of every day, I would take the book to Mrs. Lee and based on my listening skills that day, she would give me either a check, a check plus, or a check minus. Yeah. If I got enough check pluses, then I got an iguana. Oh, holy shit. Wow, that's pretty high stakes. Yeah. So I was never so motivated. Every morning I would draw an iguana on my hand, on my left hand right here, so that in class, when I was like wanting to bounce off the walls and go crazy, I would look at the iguana and I'd be like, no, no, today is not about Ride the straight and narrow for Iggy. Yeah. Today is about domesticated reptiles. I wanted to covet this iguana. Right. It's very exotic. It's like, you get to like have like a dinosaur in your house or something. I wanted to be that exotic. What's well, like a being a superhero or something? Like one day I'm gonna like don this costume and everybody will see my alter ego, exactly. the actual funniest guy in class. Do you think that Gitterman thought about himself? Do you, do you think this was as important to him as it was to you, or was he just like having a good time and was like unbothered by this idea? I do think that it was important to him. I think that it had to have been baked into a whole lot of his identity at that point because it was certainly the quality that he led with. Is that the timing that you sort of pivoted to the iguana once you realized that like Gitterman was, you were going to beat him? I didn't. But the iguana became like, well, if I can't beat him, I might as well like, you know, have cooler stuff. Do you know, I remember consciously thinking like, God, second grade and I'm already not the funniest just in this class. Right. I kept my mouth shut. I put in the work. Eventually, I got my iguana. Iggy. Is that true that you did that you got an iguana? I didn't know that. I got an iguana. You know, my recollection of the story was that you lied about having an iguana. Like people came over to your house to like see the iguana, and you had to be like, "Oh, he's like sleeping right now." Like that you had like had a whole thing with like, "Wow, well, I killed it with the listening. Yeah. I did great. I got a bunch of check pluses." Mm -hmm. Oh, good we for you, man. Went to the mm -hmm. fancy pet store a couple towns away. My mom came that day, which was big when she didn't usually come to the pet store trips, but we all, all four of us went. And I, I got Iggy. He was a little skinny baby. And we brought him home and basically he wouldn't eat for like two weeks. He got very sluggish and he almost died. Okay. Uh, 
in retrospect, they were like totally stealing these iguanas. I was going to say, I imagine like an iguana that lives in Cleveland, Ohio, is like had like sort of a rough, weird road to like arrive at the place that he's at. Yeah. Right. But Iggy's health was not going to get in the way of my delusion. So we took him back. We exchanged him for Spike. And we were looking for the thickest iguanas that they had there. A hearty iguana. One of the things I always fantasized about iguanas was that they had these big whipping tails. Right. I pulled Spike's tail off almost immediately by accident, came off in my hand, was bleeding everywhere, slapping around. It grew back, but it grew like all like black and charred and weird. (laughs) The story did get dark, not in the way that I thought it was going to, but we got there. But what I realized recently was that in realizing that David was funnier than me, it sort of spawned this other delusion that I have been living by for for the rest of my life. I'm good, but I'm not good enough to be the whole thing. I'm not, I'm not David Gitterman good. I'm not Gitterman good. <laughs> and I think that it has been that piece that has been standing in front of me really going after exactly what I want. Did David Gitterman ever meet Spike the Iguana? I think he did. I brought him to a friend's party, I think everyone was at. Did you wear him around on your shoulder at the party? I wore him on my head. Yep. You got that. <laughs> I Good got for you, Matt. I wore the iguana on my head because I didn't believe I was special enough without him. Not to hit the nail too hard on its head, but it does feel fitting that the lesson at the center of my story was listening which is probably the most applicable advice that we can take in terms of guiding our own fantasies. Listen to ourselves, listen to others, listen first. Make sure that we are telling a story that will get us acting in our own best interest. Well, Earth Monsters, it is time for the grand finale. This is the biggest celebration of my own vulnerability that I could come up with. Without further ado, I haven't spoken to my next guest in at least 25 years. He is a chef living in Southwest Florida. Please welcome the indisputable class clown and number one funniest guy from my second grade class, my friend, David Gitterman. Hello, Gitterman. What's up, guy? How are you? I'm great, man. How are you? Living the dream, man. I can't believe we're doing this. I'm in my little cubby here. You were the funniest guy in class. I think I was the second funniest. God, I hope at least the second funniest. Um, And I think we were both jerks. Yeah, I can definitely vouch for that. I was a jerk, yeah. So you were so funny in second grade. Every day from the beginning of the year, I'm sure I'm the funniest. Then as we're going in, I'm like, Dave's pretty funny. Then I'm like gauging day to day who's funnier that day, you or me. There were some days I was like, we're the same. I was coming for that top spot, buddy. I was coming for the top spot. I don't remember much of my second grade material. I'll have to check my journals. So when you were a kid, was it important to you to be the funniest guy in class? I don't even remember like having this like desire to make people laugh that much. I was just a, like a, a nutcase. Like I, I was, they would tell my parents, he's ADHD. He needs to be on Ritalin. For me, I think there was a lot more ego cooked into it. And I actually thought that there was for you too. I was imagining this was like, your currency. No. So you and I, in my mind at least, have this relationship where like, I love you, you're the funniest guy there, but I also, I'm like threatened by you, right? Because you're keeping me from, from 
I thought I was the funniest guy in class. Yeah, I don't remember this intense rivalry. I feel like we should have just teamed up and done like an Abbott Costello routine. Dude, I'm actually – your timing is is crazy. Dude. Like the, I'm reading stuff about spirituality. I'm trying to get out of myself. I'm in a true believer that the devil isn't a real person. I think it's our own egos. And like when we get selfish, that's the devil right there is our human ego. And there are moments like this. I was thinking about like you should write your comedy down more. You should first like do something with it. You enjoy making people laugh. You were so funny, dude. Were your parents funny? We had a similar kind of thing growing up. My mom would wake me up every morning for school and she said, Dave, I want you to wake up and go out there and make people smile today. And I, I literally took that as like my life's mission because I felt so spoiled and blessed because I had two parents. They were together. I lived in a nice home. I, you know, I had a very good upbringing. At any point, did you think I'm going to pursue comedy? No, I don't know how you even stand up. To this day, my friends are like, you have to go just try open mic. Just try open mic. I've never stepped on a stage or like an improv class. I've never even really attempted to write down jokes, to be honest. I'll tell you what, man. I would try to reframe that thinking towards the open mics to be, this is going to be the most fun I've ever had. I honestly want to do improv classes just to have fun, have nothing about like performance just because I've heard they're absolutely fun as hell. But honestly, I start really remember actively pursuing being funny from your mom's English class. I'll be honest, the ego in me and the chauvinist in me, she wrote that damn assignment for me. But now hearing about your family lifestyle at home, I'm starting to realize it's a possibility that assignment might not have been for me. So seventh grade, my mom was an English teacher at our school and you had her in class. I had, I had a different English teacher, but we did the same assignment, which I think is a personal narrative, basically. I had to write a monologue. This is my assignment. It's the only homework assignment I'm going to do all year. It, I think it was the only homework assignment I did all year. Everyone actually came to me for that one. I did it in front of the class and I slayed. And that was easy because I'm in front of them entertaining all the time. I'm comfortable with them. But I had won the funniest in the class. So I then had to go in front of the whole color because then there's like three colors per grade. And then if each, you know, and uh, I'll never forget, it was like, as I progressed each level, I was fucking horrified. It took everything in me just to get on stage. But then I said, I'll never forget it for the rest of my life. I said that first joke and every the, everybody just started laughing. And I had this instant calm come over me. And it was the best feeling I ever had. And I was like, oh, my God. And I just remember slaying it. And it just felt so good. And it felt so good. And I, I never chased that again. I regret that. It's so one big regret I have in my life. I never really chased that feeling. Somewhere down the hall of our junior high school, I was in my own class doing the same thing, getting all the laughs, thinking I was the funniest there ever was. I don't remember this competition ever being organized in the way that Gitterman and I had to face each other head to head, but we did compete. And to absolutely no one's surprise, Gitterman came in class clown, and I ranked second place. I wasn't surprised. My delusion had been long gone at that point. I knew Gitterman was funnier. I'd come to terms with it, I thought. Except here I am three decades later making a podcast about it, so you tell me. What's funny to me is that I never would have even remembered competing for Class Clown. I'd blocked it out. But when Gitterman started telling the story, it all came back. It was a confirmation. A confirmation that I knew my place. Second place. Gitterman was funnier. And now look at this. The second funniest second grader is now making a living from comedy. So who won that battle, Matthew? He's being generous, saying that I make my living in comedy. That's not exactly true. Back and forth between entertainment and advertising, mostly in digital. 
I have made my living with my creative superpowers. I always would have loved to become a comedian. There's just a part of me that feels like I'm I'm over the boat and I'm starting to think more practically. I think I hear my dad a lot more like I'm focused on my Roth IRA and my, uh, you know, my finances and you know what I mean? You've inspired me because on top of that, I'm going to try and, you know, spare times at work when we're slow. I'm just write stuff down. Dave, go up on stage and be ready to share everything. I promise you, if you go up there authentically and you just speak, I think you got it, man. You still got that spark in you. It was strange talking to Gitterman. It was great to reconnect with him, but it makes me remember second grade, standing in line to get our milk, looking at Gitterman, making everybody laugh. I was brewing with jealousy. I remember thinking, I'm going to show him what I can do with this. And when I do, I'm not going to include him. I know that might seem too convenient for our story, but it's true. It is just the honest-to-God pettiness of an eight-year-old. Do you... uh? Do you remember my iguana? I remember going to your house. I remember you had like the coolest house with this coolest backyard, big backyard. I remember you had animals. And I remember going over there a bunch. You had a bunch of uh, birthday parties over there. I definitely remember some of the animals. Dude, I remember the check plus check minus system because to get the crown, I also had to get a similar talk because uh, I also had to get pretty outlandish in class for that. I remember my parents saying like, no more check minuses. I was getting a lot of check minuses, I guess. I didn't get the iguana, man. Comedy has never left my life. I just do it every day at work. I never wanted to just cook. Like, I would finish cooking, and the chef would see it on my face. He's like, go change and run out there and take credit. And I'm like, you know I will. You know it, because he hated to stand in the front. And he's like, let's give it up for Dave. I'm like, yeah, I'll take full credit. I feel like my job is an extension of comedy somehow, because what I love is that people come into my restaurant. I feed them. Sometimes they have some drinks. I make them laugh and they leave with a full stomach and a smile on their face. And there's something to me that makes that extremely gratifying. It felt so good to reconnect with Gitterman. And even more than that, as you can probably tell, I'm sort of a spiritually searching kind of guy, looking to discover a higher purpose through dissecting my own fantasies. So with that said, reaching out to Gitterman after three decades felt like something of a holy moment. Because coming up in episode two... Gitterman tells us his own necessary delusion, and it is a truly epic story that does not disappoint. I am calling it Tiny Gangster. So being the amateur burglars, we forget gloves. So we take plastic bags, grocery bags, and take them around our hands, okay? So we are in this girl's house burglarizing her when him and her walk in the fucking house. If you found yourself connecting with today's show and you have a necessary delusion of your own that you would like to share, get in touch with me on Instagram at yesmatthew or email me at yournecessarydelusion at gmail.com. Send us a dollar forty-three on Venmo to keep the lights on at your necessary delusion and write us a good review wherever you're listening. Now that is a lot of homework. <laughs> if you are a small business owner or podcaster in need of your own theme song, your necessary delusion. Talk to my guy Ryan Fine. RyanFine.com. Click on custom songs. He is brilliant. He's quite affordable, and he happens to be like a brother to me. Special thanks to Christine Ramsey for designing our thumbnail, Paola Monterde for providing the recording space and being the love of my life, to Marcus Silverman, David Gitterman, and to myself for arduously working on this perspective and executing better 
on my best ideas. We'll see you next time. Say goodbye, Marcus. Bye, everybody. Sonny boy, how old are you? Four. You're four years old. And Sonny, can you tell us what you want to be when you grow up? You want to be what? Stronger. Want to be stronger. That's a good dream. Matt's talking about like um, you know, we talk about different kinds of jobs, like a like a mechanic or a fireman. A policeman. Okay, impopular career at the time, but I'll support you. You're only four. You could be a good guy. Sonny, can I ask you, do you believe in equal rights? Yeah. <laughs> I love you, kid.